Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we check in with Fidelity Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, for his weekly discussion on macro themes moving the markets and what trends and topics he has on his radar. This week, Urian touches on a possible soft landing, what the most recent CPI and PCE reports indicate, and what's on the horizon for the rest of 2023. Urian says if inflation is about to revert back to 2 to 3%, the Fed should be able to revert as well, from restrictive back to neutral. November has been a big relief for stocks and bonds. They have rallied as of late, and with the economy softening at the margins, Urian says the market could be justified at this point in saying the Fed could give back some of the rate hikes, even if we do go into a recession next year. However, Urian points out the economic outlook is slightly unclear. If we get a hard landing, historically, a lot of that has been priced into the market and will have little effect. But data suggests a soft landing. At this point, it really is too hard to tell. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on December 4th, 2023. Hi, Urian. Happy Monday to you. Good morning, Pamela. Nice to see you. Great to see you as well. So let's unpack November because it's been quite something. I mean, November happened with, you know, rates very high. Is this, is it okay? Is higher for longer going to be fine for the equity markets, for the bond markets, for asset classes generally? Well, it certainly is a November to remember. Uh, if we pull up slide 24, I'll just, I'll show you just how, how inclusive um, uh, the month of November has been and you know you're right it's it's been a, a big relief rally for both bonds and stocks and by the way long term government bonds in the US plus the S&P 500 both returned uh 9.1 9.2% in a single month i mean that is uh not something you see every year or any month for that moment and you can see there you know on the left how relatively uniform the returns were so uh, you know, CTAs, which are uh, managed futures, uh, they tend to be uh, going against the grain because it's used as a as a diversifier for many uh, for for many institutional investors. So, not surprising that that was negative, while the rest of the world was positive because that's usually how that rolls. Uh, but you see everything else very uniform, and that's in in pretty stark contrast to the year to date. Which, if we go to slide twenty three, you can see how disperse. Uh, the year-to-date numbers are with wow, you know commodities wow. minus nine, Bitcoin all the way at the bottom or at the top, I should say, but shown at the bottom at plus one twenty-eight, and so um, so it was a remarkable month in that sense. And as as you point out, um, uh, it's really continues to be all about rates. I mean, obviously we know from the third quarter earnings season that you know that came in pretty well. So the earnings narrative that. The market was sort of hinging on um, in terms of its recovery this year um, is playing out, at least for the time being. But, you know, the 10 year Treasury yields gone from 5 percent, if we pull up slide five here, from 5 percent five weeks ago to 4.2 percent. So that is a massive rally. Um, and it hinges on the, the economic data that you mentioned. You know, the CPI, of course, was the big one uh, that came in very favorably. The headline CPI which was growing at a 9% rate a year and a half ago, June of last year, 
is now growing at a 3% rate, of course, with the help of crude oil and commodity softness in general. But even the core PCE, which is the Fed's favorite measure, and if we can go to slide one, we can see that, um, is down to three and a half, which of course is still well above the Fed's target zone of, you know, two and a half, two to two and a half, or, or let's say two to three. I think the Fed would be thrilled to see any inflation number below three. Uh, and we're not there yet, of course, but you can see that, uh, core PCE, um, is heading in the right direction as well. It had been kind of sticky, but that's now moving as well. And it's interesting, if you look at that purple line, which is the core PCE year-over-year change, and you look at the gray line, which is the Fed's policy rate, and then the dotted black line is the forward curve, um, if you were to move the the, the, the axis, the time scale a little bit, uh, you could see that they are almost identical, but that one lags the other. In other words, inflation moves up, the Fed responds to it. And the Fed has now done enough that it's about two percentage points above core PCE. But you see that shape of the forward curve. And that really was um, some of the bigger news last week is that the market is now betting big again that the Fed will pivot in 2024. And of course, you know, you and I have had this conversation many, many times. And the market has been chronically too optimistic that the Fed would pivot uh, in terms of lowering rates. Um, either by declaring victory over inflation or because we're in a recession and it needs to cut rates. And the Fed has been very vocal in saying higher for longer, you know, don't get your hopes up, that sort of thing. And yeah. so now with inflation really actually starting to improve and the Fed, you know, significantly above that inflation level and some signs that the economy is softening at the margins, um, I think the market is more justified in saying, okay, the Fed could actually give back some of the rate hikes, even if we don't go in a recession, uh, just because it's not warranted to be that far above an inflation rate that is falling closer to the Fed's target. And so, uh, so I think that's been a very big shift in the narrative. Um, and uh, the bond market is part of that. And of course, once rates start to come down, the stock market can really sort of, you know, have a sigh of, of relief because that feeds right into the valuation models. And and just uh, if we're just going to add one more note here, if we go to slide seven, you know, and again, we've talked about this for a long time that, you know, the market's breadth, right, the level of participation in terms of the number of stocks has been, of course, a big problem, right? I mean, the S&P 500 uh probably bottomed a year ago in October. Looks like a typical kind of bull market if you look at the, the headline indices. But below the surface, of course, uh, the, the market has not been very broad. And this chart shows the S&P 500 equal weighted index. And the, the green shading, uh, so the greener the shading goes, the more stocks in the S&P are above their 200-day moving average. And so you can see that, you know, by definition, periods of Correction are more red. I mean, that goes without saying. And so one of the, the things in the last couple of weeks is that the market has not only rallied in a pretty dynamic way, but the breadth has been very strong as well. I think at this point, 85% of the stocks in the S&P are above their 50-day moving average. And you can see how quickly the SPW, which is what this index is, the equal weighted, has gone from kind of testing the bottom of the range to now being in the upper half. So, you know, that does not to say we're going to finally have this breakout. I, I think eventually we will. You can see that trend line rises and these periods of 
consolidation tend to give way to the prevailing trend, which for the market generally is higher. Uh, so I, that's what I'm betting on for 2024. But um, you know what we're what we've seen in the last few weeks has been really positive on all fronts. You got the inflation numbers, you've got the resiliency in the economy still, and you got the Fed now having some room to give back some of the rate hikes, maybe not as much as the market is expecting. You got bond yields better behaved, and you have a rally in the stock market that isn't just the Magnificent Seven, uh, it's still dominated by tech, but it's much, much broader now. Take us into, if we can dip into just a, for a minute, sort of the factors and, and how, how things can be measured in different, many different ways. You, you show us many of them, but just the idea of momentum. I think you've mentioned this, what we saw on Friday, this idea of the factor of momentum and you know what it might be worth to investors over the next little while. Yeah, I mean, slide nine shows that. Um, so we can measure this in a number of ways, right? Um, and uh, what slide nine shows is the percentage of stocks in the S&P that have an RSI above 70. And the RSI means relative strength index. It's really just a price momentum indicator. So this counts the number of stocks that have strong price momentum. And you can see at 32%, uh, it rarely gets higher than that. And of course, the caveat, if you just look at this chart, is that generally that shows um, maybe what we could call a blow-off, so a short-term signal that maybe momentum is too strong. And you know, if we just look at the market today, it's it's down a little bit, not a big deal. But typically, uh, this will usher in some price consolidation at least over the short term. But it's a way of measuring that a lot of stocks have good momentum and this includes you know kind of the the cats and dogs that you know uh that that were were left behind you know over the last uh, year or so so uh it's it's interesting to see uh, a, a robust tape in in this sense and and you know the market tends to head fake a lot of people and you can see this rising channel so this is for the S&P 500 capitalization weighted index uh, you can see how we had that false breakdown below that channel that actually created what we call a bullish divergence where price made a lower low. Um, actually, in this chart, I'm showing the P.E. ratio, apologies, but uh, moment, valuation or price, they tend to move hand in hand, made a lower low while the number of stocks with um, you know positive momentum made a higher low. And so that was a that was a good signal from a from a technical perspective. Fascinating to see that, really, it just sort of the signals that you're that you're bringing to us. So, yeah, and, and, and just if I could just add, you know, it's interesting that we talk about you know seasonals a lot, right? And we know that the bearish seasonals are August, September into the middle of October. And you know, every year when I look at them, it's like, well, everyone knows this, so at some point it stops working. But it does continue to work because we are now, you know, in December. Uh, middle of October all the way till April is is a strong period, and you know the Santa rally, right? We we know about that, and so th- this playbook is is playing out at least so far. Fascinating. Um, so as you mentioned, I think at one point it is all about rates. So this question: Is there any danger, Urian, of markets celebrating rate cuts too soon, or have rate cuts already even been priced in? It's a great question. Actually, we can go to slide two to give you that answer. And yes, by definition, rate cuts are priced in because when you look at the forward curve as that moves, I mean, under the efficient market hypothesis, right, um, uh, 
the market uh, immediately um, discounts everything that is known and every change that that happens to the narrative. And so we see here in the orange line, the forward curve uh, has dipped significantly. I mean, literally two weeks ago, the dip in that curve ended at maybe four and a half, and now it's 3.44. So that's a very significant, you know, pivot from the market. Um, and um, and I think it's, you know, maybe 3.44 is, is wishful thinking. And also when you look at the dots, so that's the dot plot, um, you can see that that orange line in 2025 is exactly in the middle of that dot plot. So the market actually is on the same page as the Fed itself, right? From what the Fed is publishing through its dot plot, the Fed is saying, you know, we're gonna, once we slay this dragon, we're going to return to neutral. And, you know, the Fed seems to think that neutral is two and a half. I think that's, that's, that's crazy. I think neutral is closer to three to 4%. And so in 2025, that's exactly where the forward curve is. So in that sense, market and the Fed are on the same page. Where, where they're not on the same page is the speed with which the Fed, the Fed will get there. So you see the 2024 dots, they're at around, you know, four and a half to five, and the orange line is well below that. So I think it comes back to a matter of timing. Uh, and my guess is that the Fed will win this battle, right? The Fed is in no hurry to give back the rate hikes because, you know, inflation is still well north of the Fed's target. And of course, it knows that if it starts cutting rates here, either it will spook the market because the market will think it knows something, or it will just, you know, loosen financial conditions so much that it will it will cause the economy to actually reaccelerate and then, uh, you know, reaccelerate before it has sort of slayed the inflation dragon. And the Fed doesn't want to do that. So I think the Fed, as long as the economy remains pretty resilient, which which it is. Uh, the Fed is in no hurry to give back the rate cuts on the, the rate hikes unless it sees some sort of issue. But in principle, if neutral is three to four and uh, the Fed is at five and a quarter to five and a half and inflation is heading to three or maybe even lower, but let's say three, then there really is no reason for the Fed to be at five and a half. The Fed could be the Fed could and should get closer to a neutral policy rate, which would be three to four, you know, let, let's say four. So that would be 125 basis points of give back of the rate hike cycle, which is kind of what the market is 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 eyeing here. And the market is not is not completely you know wrong here in, in saying it. It's just a question of when and under what circumstances it will happen. And how big might the cuts be? This is priced in. We see it on WERP. But I mean, do you see... Does it does it need to take some big steps down or it can afford you're talking about the confidence that it has and sort of it is where it is. It's no hurry. So it can just do 25 steps along the way. It doesn't need to. Take yeah, I, I mean, we've had a few soft landings over uh, the course of history. Right. So 95, of course, is the best known one. Alan Greenspan, the maestro. And he raised rates 300 basis points in 1994. And then in 1995, he gave back. 75 basis points. Um, inflation never became a problem, and that's kind of a chicken and egg story. Like, did inflation not become a problem because the Fed was tightening, or did it just not become a problem because there was no problem there in the first place? We'll never know that answer. Uh, but but Greenspan gave back, you know, a third of more or less of, of those rate hikes. Uh, the other soft landings were 84 and 1966 
So tightening cycles that did not lead to recessions. And eventually, you know, the, the, the Fed kind of, you know, it, it mean reverts like a pendulum around a neutral rate, right? So the question is, do you go from easy to restrictive back to easy, in which case there's likely a recession going on? Or do you just go from easy to restrictive back to neutral, which rarely happens, but it happened in 1995. So 95 remains sort of the, the, the playbook. And actually, 2019 would have been a soft landing if it wasn't okay. for the pandemic, right? And the pandemic cannot be blamed on the Fed. I mean, that, that's a bolt from the blue, of course. But the Fed raised rates quite significantly in 2018. We had that sell off in 20, you know, in late uh, 2018, 20%. And we had the Powell pivot, as it's known. And then we had that whole repo thing in 2019. And uh, the Fed, you know, cut rates because it realized it was being, uh, it, it had drained too much liquidity from the system. So it was less about we need to cut rates because the economy is soft, but it was more the, the plumbing side. And, and maybe the Fed will do something similar, but very, very few examples of a soft landing uh, in the first place and how much the Fed might give back. But the way I think about it, if neutral is 3 to 4%, and let's say the Fed will tolerate inflation 2 to 3%, but not above 3%, then it's just a question of calibrating how restrictive you are, how far above the neutral rate you are, given what's happening to inflation. And for the first time in this cycle, the Fed can actually look at inflation and say, you know what, I like what I see. What will fly when a rate cut is actually announced? What will fly, I think, are the, the left behind stocks, right? The stocks that, uh, or the companies that are vulnerable to rising rates. So, uh, they, they tend to be smaller companies, more value companies. And, you know, I don't have the chart this week, but I've shown the chart with that liquidity uh, measure and small cap value. You know, it's it's they, they, they're kind of one in the same. But companies with weaker balance sheets, with higher debt and debt service who have a wall of maturities coming up to refinance that debt. Obviously, if rates start to fall, uh, they are highly levered to that outcome. And so those are the companies that have been left behind over the past 13 months uh, during the rally in the stock market, and they would catch up really fast. And if we go back to slide seven for, for a moment, and slide seven is just the S&P 500, so these are large caps. But again, that is the scenario where you have a broadening out in a rising tape. Um, and that's, you know, that's the holy grail, right? Because if you're an active manager or just want someone who who is not comfortable just holding these seven mega cap stocks, but wants to be in other countries and other regions in other styles, you know, that that is your that is your 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 desired outcome. Uh, and that's your soft landing scenario right there. Right there. Fascinating. A couple of questions. Great questions. One is about the yield curve inversion, whether it is, in fact, still predicting a recession. So we'll ask you that. Then there's questions, not surprisingly, on gold. So we'll spend some time on gold towards the end. Um, should we just hit on the, the yield curve inversion first, though? Yeah. So the yield curve, of course, um, uh, ha had been heavily inverted and was so for a very long time. And of course, it's still inverted. And actually, in the last few weeks, ironically, it's getting more inverted uh, it because the long bond is coming down in yield 
but that is a bullish flattener um, um, or a, a bullish flattener, whereas in recent months we had a bearish steepener. So the, the yield curve was sort of disinverting because long rates were rising, and that's the story about the term premium, which we've discussed uh, at length. So now it is a bullish flattener, but it is not a flattener based on the expectation of a recession. Um, you know, that's typically how you get a bullish flattener. Right? The Fed is raising rates. The long end starts to kind of get concerned about the effects of that. And then those yields come down. You get an inverted curve and then you get a recession anywhere from two quarters to to to, to eight quarters after that. And of course, that has been the fear all year. And the curve until two weeks ago or three weeks ago was bare steepening. And but now it's 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 bull flattening again. So but I think that bull flattening is really more about positioning. And actually, um, let's go to slide six. It's really more about positioning, I think, and the market just um, finding value in the bond market. But here's the two year yield. And in the bottom is the commitment of traders report showing speculative positions in the two year futures uh, contract. And you can see how crowded this trade has been. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing those shorts getting 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 mopped off the floor, if you will. And even the two-year yield gone from 526 to 454 in just a matter of a few weeks. So a pretty dramatic rally. So I, I don't read anything necessarily from the action in the bond market about what it means for the shape of the yield curve and therefore the economy. I think this is kind of partly technical. Um, but um, but you know the economy has been resilient. The yield curve, uh, if that signal does work someday, and, and certainly we don't want to bet that it won't because it's always worked in the past. Uh, but the reason why maybe the signal has been delayed this cycle is because of what we've talked about in the past, which is that a large chunk of the economy has uh, become less sensitive to, to rising rates. And I'm talking mostly about homeowners in the U.S., you know, sitting on three-year fixed rate mortgages. I mean, a 3% mortgage in this world is is an asset, you know, and it's an asset you're not going to give up, uh, you know, easily. So, uh, so maybe 2024 will be another time where we talk about uh, recession and yield curves. But right now, the market I think is looking at at other things. Fantastic. So we'll we'll go inside the gold trade, which which seems one of those sort of enigmas wrapped in mystery and so on. Um, but I want to get your thoughts on that. And then there's also a question about. You know, bullishness in the U.S., what, what does that mean for EM? Actually, can they rally at the same time? So maybe we'll finish with that. But let's dig into we're seeing gold higher Bitcoin as well, catching a massive bid. Um, take us into some of your work there. Yeah. So let's go to slide 36. Uh, and I just uh, kind of updated all my, my my Bitcoin stuff. And of course, gold is very much part of that story. Right. Because when I went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole three years ago, uh, my whole thesis was, as someone living in the 60-40 paradigm, that, uh, you know, to me, Bitcoin is exponential gold. It's like it's like a digital gold with this network effect attached to it, which makes it more like a venture asset. But the easiest way to explain gold, in my view, is that it's a, it's a hedge against inflation, whether that's price inflation or monetary inflation, you know, too much money printing. Um, and this chart shows it goes all the way back to 18, you know, the 1880s. Uh, the, the gray line at the top shows the money supply and the dotted line is the trend line in money supply, which is about 6% per year. 
Um, and then the purple line is the value of all the above ground gold in the world. And what you can see is that when you have periods of monetary inflation, and those are shaded in red, uh, like the 1940s, the 1970s, uh, briefly during the financial crisis, and of course, mo more notably in, in recent years during COVID, uh, the value of gold or the market share of gold, if you will, goes up. And so if Bitcoin is now a player on that team, then uh, it goes along for the ride. Uh, but that doesn't really explain why gold is up there at 2,200 right now, because as you can see from that chart, as quickly as the money supply rose above the trend line, it has fallen back down. And of course, we know why. It's because the Fed has slammed on the brakes. Um, and so in that sense, this kind of looks like the 1940s, where it was a very sharp increase, but it was short-lived, whereas the 1970s was truly a structural period of, of inflation. It's called the Great Inflation. Um, so in that sense, gold really should not be doing that well. But I think gold is caught up in the same pivot story as, you know, every asset class is. And so if the Fed is going to give back some of these rate hikes, then real rates will start to fall. Um, and that's generally good for gold. I mean, gold ultimately is a is a play on real rates, but it really it, it doesn't seem like the right time for gold to, to take off here just because right. yeah. the monetary environment is still shrinking. So gold must be betting on either uh, some kind of geopolitics or an accident that's around the corner with with you know the banks that will push the Fed into a much easier regime. But again, those are all kind of you know um, stories that I, I don't I don't know that they are that they can really explain what's what's happening. So let's ask this one because as you said, there there is sort of this asset pivot that is taking place across across multi assets. What about the regional stories? Can can the U.S. rally and the way that we're watching it? Does it necessarily mean that EM can't take us into sort of the dollar story and where we go from there? I mean, that is a dollar story, but it's also uh, the Magnificent Seven story, right? I mean, if I mean, we talked about the market broadening early, uh, earlier in the show. And if if the market can broaden in a benign way, meaning in a rising market um, and the stuff that was left behind because it was caught in this vice of tightening liquidity and start to participate, then obviously that means small caps and value will start to catch up. The S&P equal weight will start to catch up to the S&P cap weight. And then everything else that is not the Magnificent Seven should, in theory, you know, participate in that. And that would obviously include non-U.S. equities, emerging markets especially. But you need a falling dollar. I mean, you don't need a falling dollar, but it helps, right? Uh, because when the dollar comes down, uh, it, it increases liquidity uh, throughout the global system. So if if the market broadens in the U.S., then I, I have pretty high conviction that uh, the market will broaden globally as well, um, and and that everything else that's been kind of paid back will be able to catch up, and and that of course is very much the glass half full Goldilocks scenario for 2024 that that will that that will happen. Any reason that the asset of oil? Do we call it oil an asset? Is energy? I, I don't know. Anyway, it's dropping. What's going on there? Um, yeah, it's it just. Um, Oil is an asset. I mean, it's commodities are an asset class, and oil is is a primary uh, member of that uh, of that team. 
So for oil, it's a combination of, you know, supply and demand. I mean, demand has been weaker. Inventories, you know, are, are a, a better story. But in my sense, um, energy remains a structural uh, supply constraint story. So um, I'm, I remain bullish on, on energy, on oil and energy companies, uh, because outside of OPEC and um, there really isn't um, a lot of action going on in terms of increasing the supply, like the shale industry in the U.S. is peaking. And so I don't know where the, where the, the, the marginal barrels are going to come from outside of maybe Saudi Arabia. That's fascinating. Okay, good. Good to just get your thoughts on that. I think we, we did across the universe of assets. So that was just <laughs> brilliant to catch up with you. And, and you're going to catch a plane and then we'll catch up with you in Boston next week. You're yes, indeed. You very much. Safe travels to you. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.